Good morning to my good friend, Dr. William Willeman, Dean of this Grand Chapel, to Dr. Putnam, to all my friends, old and new in this glorious sanctuary which I call home. It feels so good to be back here. After nearly 20 years on this campus, there came a point where I could scarcely imagine ever leaving here after three degrees and almost a decade on the faculty. And then came that day when someone made me an offer I could not refuse. And even then it was difficult. I said to my wife, I said, uh, Lynn, who is, by the way, an A.B. Duke scholar, so she's back home also. I can't imagine leaving uh, Perkins Library. She said, well, there's the Moreland Spingon Center at Howard, and besides, there's the Library of Congress in Washington. I said, that's right. I said, well, I can't um, imagine uh, leaving the vicinity of Duke Chapel. She said, well, there is Rankin Chapel at Howard, and besides, there's the National Cathedral in Washington and the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. I said, that's right, but I can't imagine leaving my good friends, my colleagues. She said, well, you have, I'm sure, good friends and colleagues in the making at Howard, and besides, there are all those senators and... On second thought, maybe you ought to reconsider. <laughs> I did reconsider, but decided that God would have me elsewhere at this juncture in my life, and so I bring you greetings from the Howard School of Divinity, over which I now preside as acting dean. The School of Divinity at Howard is one of 18 schools and colleges spread out over five campuses comprising Howard University in Washington. And I invite each of you to come by and see our resplendent campus in Northeast Washington when you're in the area. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask now that you will cast the divine golden cords beyond the battlements of heaven and draw us nearer to thee and thy purpose through the preached word. Amen. Living without walls. Living without walls. Perhaps you will join me just for a few minutes in looking at this beautiful passage in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, verses 11 through 22, and focus at the outset with me on verse 14. Here, the author, purportedly a Pauline disciple of the next generation, depicts Christ in a most 
fascinating way. Christ is depicted as our peace. That is, as the embodiment of the very bond of our peace, in that he has broken down and replaced the wall of hostility that divides us at all levels of our social life. Now, when it comes to describing divisions among men and women, the wall metaphor is very old. It's been used many, many times. Indeed, if each of us had a proverbial dollar for each time this metaphor has been used, we would all be beyond the financial problems posed by an economy in recession. But then it was not this wall as a symbol of human divisiveness that captured my attention. What caught my eye was the sense in which the metaphor in the context of this verse, verse 14, implies the foolishness of building walls for the purpose of securing peace. I'm so glad to see so many young people in the congregation today, and as I look at this group behind me and in front of me to hear today singing, I'm reminded of how important my stint in the chapel choir became to my success at this institution. But I'm also reminded how at an early age, my parents began to inculcate into me this notion of the foolishness of building walls in order to secure peace. Throughout the history of humankind, the building of walls figures prominently in the effort of people to secure peace, to have peace and to secure it. There are numerous biblical accounts of such one that comes foremost to mind this morning is the story of Nehemiah's commitment to rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem following its destruction by Babylonian forces in the summer of 586 B.C. For Nehemiah, the peace of Jerusalem was integrally tied up with 
reconstructing the great wall that once surrounded the city. The temple once refurbished and the inhabitants of the city could be secure as he saw it only if the wall were rebuilt. And so it was rebuilt. And so great a wall was it that at the dedication ceremony, Nehemiah was able to organize a magnificent procession atop the wall. A procession consisting of all the princes of Judah and two great companies of men who walked perhaps ten to twelve abreast, resplendent in their finest robes, bedecked in their finest jewels and gold adorned all around. And yet it's ironic. For all that Nehemiah did in getting the wall rebuilt, it's ironic that, ironic that little was actually accomplished in the way of securing peace for the city. You see, there is something about the nature of walls. Often, walls arouse hostility and enmity both without and within their boundaries. In the book of Nehemiah, for example, we are informed that the wall intensified hostility between the Jews and their enemies, the Sumerians and the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, the Amorites, as my oldest daughter would say, all those dikes. And at the same time, this same wall fostered dissension among the Jews themselves. The enemies of the Jews stood some distance back, I imagine, on a slight incline and looking in the direction of Jerusalem, saw the Jews busy rebuilding the wall, asking themselves, do they really intend to go through with this project of rebuilding the wall? We just tore it down. We made a pile of ashes. We made rubbish out of that wall. Are they going to rebuild it so we will lay it waste again? Nehemiah had to contend with the design of his enemies to interfere with the project of rebuilding the wall. But then among the Jews themselves, dissension arose. Many a person went to Nehemiah and complained about all the time given to rebuilding the wall and the concern that some would have to sell their children into slavery in order to get food to eat because they did not have time to raise food in the fields on account of that wall. Walls have a very curious nature. 
To be sure they serve a positive function and purpose, I will leave it, though, in the interest of time to your imagination to identify those times when walls are necessary. As I look back over the course of history and I think about the great wall around China built during the Qing dynasty, or as I think about the great Berlin Wall, or even as I think about this little fence that my wife and I built around our house when we were living in northern Durham County, I can't help but think that walls have at best a very limited purpose and use. We built this little fence around our backyard so that we could keep our baby daughter safe, so we thought, and every day both my wife and I kept peering out of the window. I suppose we spent as much as a half an hour to 45 minutes each day peering out the window to see if the neighbor's children had torn the fence down at any point. No peace of mind. Our first proposition is this. Building walls does not secure peace. And yet each of us goes about our daily living as if the inverse were true. Daily, even hourly, we build all sorts of walls around us, individually and collectively as families, as special interest groups, as communities, as denominations, as nations, as races. We let our opinions and we let our customs, we let our habits and we let our biases, we allow our preferences and our, our wishes and our desires and our ambitions, our aspirations, we let all these things misserve us. Properly understood, they should serve us in a way that they enrich the meaning of our living in a way that we can appreciate the variety and the diversity of God's handiwork. But too often they serve us as walls which keep others unnecessarily at bay. Walls behind which we seek psychical and emotional and spiritual space in a futile attempt to be at peace. We cannot find peace in this way, and the author of Ephesians was well aware of it. In the King James translation of this passage, there is also reference in the 14th verse to the middle wall partition in the temple which restricted Gentiles to the outer part of the sanctuary. Only Jews by law and by custom were allowed to go beyond the partition into the inner sanctum where set the Ark of the Covenant. Reference to this partition is significant, for the author wishes to convey symbolically that 
Christ renders obsolete and irrelevant all things that would divide humankind. It's as if only Duke graduates could come through the portals of the back of this resplendent chapel. The author of Ephesians wishes to convey that all partitions have been rendered meaningless by the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus and meaningless to Christians, to Jews, to Gentiles, meaningless. When we try to understand why we are so often divided by our opinions and our customs and our biases and so forth, it becomes apparent that we are prone in our culture to confuse happiness with peace. Happiness is not synonymous with peace, I maintain. Happiness may be derivative of peace, but certainly by my standards, peace cannot be reduced to happiness. Perhaps happiness, we can agree, is a mood which comes and goes, a mood which we sometimes mistake for peace. Maybe we could argue that happiness akin to bliss, let us say, is something of a process. Maybe for some of us even a process of pursuing avenues of escape, of escape from reality without dying. And daily, I'm seeing people in the Washington area who are trying to get out of life without dying, trying to be happy without really living the way in which this drug culture has now so gotten its ugly hands around the spiritual neck of this nation is a sight to behold. Do you know that now in many of the funerals in Washington, the drug dealers arrive at the service not to pay tribute to the person slain, but to shoot the casket during the service? To make sure that the person is dead, so to speak. Where are we in our attempt in this society to be at peace, mistaking happiness, or bliss for that matter, for peace. Peace, I maintain, is a process, but it's a process of being made whole, made whole by becoming one with God and one with our fellow men and fellow women. This is precisely the connotation of the word peace as it is derived from its Greek root, Irene, from which we get the name Irene. It, this word I find most fascinating because, in part, it means to be at rest. We ask, what does being at rest have to do with peace? Well, it means being at rest because something is whole. How is that connected with peace? Well, when we think about it, we only have friction and tension at the point that something is divided. When things can rub against things, we then have tension and friction. The thing cannot be at rest there. But when something is whole and complete, 
it is at rest, and it is at peace. We ask ourselves as we move towards closing, how might we enter into this peace, this process of becoming whole? This brings us to our second proposition, which is peace is possible, I maintain, only through our faith in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, we are told that Christ Jesus, having preached and having pursued peace even unto the cross, is our peace. Jesus is the means, the process, by which we become whole. As our peace, we are made one when we enter into Christ Jesus. By the power of the resurrection, God meets us in our faith, receives us as we are, different though we be by appearance, by habit, by custom, God takes us and creates out of the many one new humanity, one body with one mind and one will reconcilable to God. Interestingly, in Christ we are not changed in the way that we lose all distinctiveness as individuals, as communities, as nationalities, as racial groups. In this sense, we do not cease to be who we are. What ceases is the priority of superficial things over our lives. And as a result, we become what we can be in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, we can be at peace. For in his flesh, enmity was brought to an end. All customs and ordinances and commandments were abolished in terms of having priority over our lives. And then here is our final proposition. There is peace when we live without walls. For when we live without walls, God works through Christ Jesus, even as we are in Christ, to fashion and to mold and to reshape and to transform our lives so that we can become, as it were, living stones. And with these living stones, God, the master builder, begins to build divine walls. Not walls to divide, but walls to unite and to bind together. And in this unity, this binding together, there is peace for these living stones are fashioned and shaped and built into a living temple, a breathing, pulsating, living church, living Christian community in which indwells the God who is peace. It's as if God takes a life and transforms it, so much like David, many of us hold out until the very end, and then when the end comes, we recognize that God is in control of life. And when we give in to God's sovereignty, here comes the flood of blessing. 
God takes the life. He doesn't care what condition it is in when he finds it. He transforms it. He makes it into a living stone. And he places it upon the foundation of the apostles. Then he takes another and he transforms it into a living stone. And he lays it next to that other life. And he takes another one and he lays it to the one laid before. And he binds all of these living stones with the blood of Christ Jesus. And he builds his living temple to the end that we might be at peace. I say today, let us all commit ourselves to living without walls, for when we live without walls, there is peace. We have peace with ourselves. We have peace with others. We have peace to live together and peace to work together. We have peace to play together and peace to grow together. When we live without walls, we have the peace of God. Amen.